This episode is brought to you by Morty, Rizova, Recon, and Patreon supporters like you. Supporting our sponsors supports our work. This year, we're hosting Recon, the Reality Escape Convention, virtually, so that we can bring our entire global community together. Our team has decided to alternate one year in person, one year virtual, and this year, we are doing it online. We had such a fantastic time at the first in-person Recon. And we wanted to make sure that our friends from around the world who maybe couldn't manage to come in person are still able to enjoy Recon with all of the variety of speakers and guests that we have. And that's exactly what we're doing. Recon has a variety of ticket types to meet your needs. And the basic ticket is free. No tricks. We want our global community at Recon, and we hope to see each and every one of you there August 19th and 20th, 2023. You can learn more at realityescapecon.com. Details in the show notes. Tickets are on sale now. Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod, your lifeline when you need a getaway from the real world. I'm David Spira, alongside my co-host, PG Law. Together, we're exploring immersive gaming from all angles, and we'll be joined by guests who really know their stuff. Today's guest is our first returning guest. He originally appeared on Season 2, Episode 2. From his work on the seminal escape rooms of Time Run, to his latest endeavors, Phantom Peak and Spectre and Vox, which we will be discussing... He has done more to push the immersive gaming world forward than most anyone. Welcome back, Nick Moran. Hi. Hi. It's a pleasure to be here digitally, not physically, because I'm just a person in your ears. Look, just enjoy it. I'm there inside your head. And it's a pleasure to be back. (laughs) Our first returning guest, and all it took was for you to create a massive open world concept that David absolutely lost his mind over. That's all. You know, no pressure to anybody else who wants to come back again. (laughs) Anyone else is welcome to try or welcome to give me money. Then I can make more Phantom Peaks. Well, we'll get to all of that. (laughs) (laughs) I have a really stupid question. You keep calling um, Time Run seminal, and I have a pretty good vocabulary, and I feel really stupid that I don't know what that means. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Seminal is sort of a eventful or strongly influential work. Okay. I guess it now describes Phantom Peak as well. It does, I would say. Oh, well, very flattering. We're doing something new. Since you're our first returning guest, we're going to do a little bit of a flashback sequence where we're going to go and play a bit of the conversation that we had together. In fact, this really is the last thing that you said in your episode with us way back in season two. Meow Wolf, I find personally very inspiring. I know people are talking about them a lot. I think what they've done, again, with the art world, is really push at the boundaries of what a consumable art experience is. And I really respect it. I've never been. I've seen all the videos and stuff like that. I'd love to go. But for me, tackling that challenge, but also because I'm not from an art background, from a set building and you know construction of mechanics and things like that and structure point of view, the answer is how do you weave something into something of that scale? 20,000 square foot or 50,000 square foot, ideally, That for me is the exciting challenge that I think will be what I want to do next. I'd like to make into something that just opens up what escape rooms is. Because again, to go back to to some of the things I've always been trying to solve with Celestial Chain, which still is probably the best summary of a lot of my problems with escape rooms, is that I just want to do something that everyone can enjoy no matter what your engagement is. And always my fear is that an escape room can lose people. And I've seen it happen. I've seen time games. They were good. They were really nice. People really enjoyed them. But you know what's great about an experience like Meow Wolf is that everyone can enjoy it and get it. Everyone can enjoy and they can digest the art on different levels and digest the scenic, but they can go and have a lovely time when they're not forced to do anything. You want something that allows people who want passive experiences to have a passive experience and people who want active experience to have an active experience. 
and people who want to go and drink in a bar, which is nicely themed also to do that as well, because give me that food and beverage money, guys. If you're coming to an area and go to a bar, someone else's, no, I want that money. That annoys me. Uh, <laughs> that's for me the exciting challenge and i'm really pumped by it how i get there that's an exciting question but yeah meow wolf plus escape rooms plus everything that's it wow i really go up a lot at the end of my sentences don't i that's quite annoying i'm gonna try and go down <laughs> at the end of every sentence today <laughs> it is a strange thing to be forced to listen to yourself <laughs> with an audience <laughs> so nick when we interviewed you in June of 2021, was Phantom Peak already happening or was this the mindset that gave birth to the concept? This was definitely the mindset that gave birth to the concept. We didn't have a venue then. We didn't have a solid idea of what the creative would be. We didn't have a solid idea of what the story and the world would be. But we knew the emotional impact we wanted to achieve. And I think that was a good place to begin with. Listening back, although my voice is very annoying, Ando's does go up at the end of every sentence, <laughs> which is a habit I'm trying to now break in the course of this podcast. <laughs> a lot of the thinking was stuff that came into Phantom Peak, obviously, four to five months later when the Phantom Peak ideas started to come together in that, I guess, early 2022, late 2021 kind of period. In many ways, what Phantom Peak is trying to do is quite obvious in a way. It's trying to bring all those ingredients I'd said. It's just, it's a mixture of all those things and trying to do it together. How it does it is more interesting discussion, but I think the thinking behind that and that discussion, I think probably a lot of escape room owners who have large venues will be just nodding along saying, yeah, that's exactly what I want to do or the kind of thing. So it, the thinking isn't special, if you get me. I don't know whether it's special or not, but what was clear to me listening back to the episode in preparation for this conversation was that what you described there was Phantom Peak in every way except for the name. You basically told us what you were going to do. And at the time, I thought you were waxing philosophical and that maybe one day you were going to get there. I wasn't expecting this to open like a year and a half after this conversation. I don't think I was expecting it to open a year and a half after that conversation. So I think we were both in exactly the same boat. Cool. So at least I now know that there wasn't some kind of like subterfuge and like you were explaining what you were doing while you were actually doing it. No, no, I'm an immensely and notoriously poor liar. And well, not bad at keeping secrets, especially to people that I'm not a clever enough strategist to lay like clever reveals for a, a year in advance. This is the foreshadowing. <laughs> I'm not in an HBO program where it's, you know, season one, episode one, I'm laying something for season three, episode six finale, because White Lotus only has seven episodes a series. I'm not clever enough to do that. But I think it was just where the discussions were at with me and the other partners on this project about what we wanted to do and how we executed it was the conundrum, really. But no, there was no subterfuge. I'm not that kind of guy. It felt a little bit like Athena springing hole out of Zeus's head. I can't believe you came up with the mechanics and everything only like a year later. We started working on it really, I would say, in earnest, January of the next year. So it was about a, a six-month build, six months of hell. But everyone else who's been in a similar position knows exactly how that is. And uh, I think the mechanics, in a way, revealed themselves to us. It's a question of how do you achieve this? The only answer is this. The problem solved themselves a little bit as they went along. Let's dive into Phantom Peak. Can you explain what it is to people who have never been and how it works? So Phantom Peak is, as we've said, it's an open world experience. Effectively, you come to this strange town in another universe, which is sort of westerny, steampunky themed, but no one has any accents because that's banned. That's, you're not allowed to do that in Phantom Peak because I hate people with bad American accents. Uh, no, but not really. It's not set in our world. And you're invited there by this mysterious benefactor, a man named Jonas, whose company, Jonaco, have just taken over this strange town. And it really is, story-wise, a battle between the old and the new. And the way you're guided around is by a web app, which guides you around and gives you one of these things called trails. Trails are linear stories, a little bit like side quests in a video game. And what the web app is designed to do 
isn't to do anything particularly complicated. It's to make sure you understand each step of the story as you go along and you consume content through self-service machinery and video terminals and things like that. And at the end of your story, the story that you go through where you meet actors and characters along the way, you get what we call a trail card. We call these stories trails. And a trail card is sort of the physical manifestation of the story that you have. And that's largely speaking the underlying mechanic that is the bedrock of Phantom Peak. But on top of that, there are events and there are games and there are carnival games and there are lots of other things that happen. There are little mini side quests done by actors who grab you as you kind of go past. But what the underlying mechanic is that this is a world full of stories. And when you come in, your group are given, assigned by the app a story and a quest you're on, and you go off on your own little events yourselves. You're not in with different teams. You can all go on separate quests if you want, or trails as we call them. But largely speaking, we encourage you to stick with your team because it's more fun to experience each one is its own sort of little vertical slice of the world. Phantom Peak works seasonally. So, so far we've had three seasons. The fourth one opens fairly soon. Each season is a whole different bunch of stories and a slight time jump between the seasons. Now, you don't have to have gone to previous seasons to understand it, but obviously you get some extra from it if you do. But we consider each season to be thematically and narratively separate to the next one, a little bit like an anthology series or something like that. And that's how Phantom Peak works. Its underlying mechanics are storytelling, some light, light puzzling, but more like deduction-based things, and character-based storytelling. That's how Phantom Peak works. If that's not clear, I can have another bash at it. Plus food, plus really fun merch. Yes, plus merch. Plus platypuses. Platypuses are a big thing in Phantom Peak. So the Blue Rings platypus is obviously, its home is in Phantom Peak. I say obviously, because you all know that. And uh, so there's uh, Platy Hooks, which is the national sport of Phantom Peak, where you hook platypus. There's lots of different platypus-related trails and quests, but platypuses are the national animal of Phantom Peak and indigenous only to Phantom Peak. And that is persistent throughout the seasons. Even if the themes of the seasons change, the platypus will always reign supreme in Phantom Peak. The seasons are more like it's a different, it's reflecting us. It's a different season of the year. And the characters are nearly always the same between the seasons, but little things might have changed to them. Someone might have got in Jonico, the company that a majority of the Phantom Peak residents work for. Uh, someone might have got a rank increase. Someone might have got a rank decrease. There are different changes of status. Every single person in the town has different status. Someone might go away for a season, then a new character comes in. So it's the living, breathing town that you're entering into rather than saying, okay, what's the next chapter of the story? Because that's not necessarily interesting. We say, what is the situation now? Who is in there and how do they feel about it and what's happening to those characters? So it's something that people can meet people and interact with and empathize with their stories rather than some sort of Marvel-esque cinematic universe where even if you haven't seen Ant-Man 7, how are you going to get anything from Ant-Man 8? That's how we think about it. So <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. I had yeah. a question about how seasons work. I feel like you touched on it mostly. So when I was talking to David about this after he had gone, we weren't sure if it was actually following seasons of the year, but it sounds like it does. It sort of does. Phantom Peak seasons mirror ours sometimes and sometimes don't. That's the kind of general truth of it. So for example, the next season is a platypus parade, which is an event that we don't have in our world, much as I wish we did. And then we've got Summer of Jonas, which is our summer season. And then we have other seasons that follow that. Hallowed Peak, our Halloween season. And then a Wintermas 2 Cruise Control. No, not named after Speed 2 Cruise Control. The worst title for a sequel of all time. Um, are, so, are you sure? Are, are, are you sure? Electric Boogaloo? Speed 2 Cruise Control is my... Because it's like a pun. In the executives room, they were like, yes. Because it's about <laughs> a ship that can't slow down. So it's on cruise control. <laughs> but yet, it is about the control of a cruise. And it's so self-indulgently clever. And the film is so terrible. I wanted to pose in it as like a terrorist and they didn't have Keanu Reeves back, even though he's the star of it. They had Sandra Bullock, the character no one really cared about. It's just, it's a bad sequel. And I wouldn't advise you watch it if you're a fan of the original, which is a tight thriller. Tight thriller. It's got Jeff Daniels being a policeman in it. And that's just so unbelievable. Which is the most unbelievable thing I've ever heard. So each show culminates in a season finale. I know when I tried to explain that to PG, that every single show in a season had a finale 
the conversation got a bit confusing and sort of turned into a bad version of who's on first. How do the finales work? We call it the closing ceremony. We think of them as opening ceremony and closing ceremony. We haven't had opening ceremonies until the next season, so that's new for us. But we have a closing ceremony where some of the threads of the stories come together. And if you've done some of those trails, it's quite nice. But if you haven't done them, it's still a nice moment for everything to come together and feel like a kind of rounding off of the show. We advise that people do three to four trails across your time in Phantom Peak. There's more than enough time to do that and still have a very nice time over the kind of four and a half to like five hours of a show. And that gives some of those stories epilogues that kind of make you realize this is what's happening to those particular characters. And that does happen to every character, but it's a way of giving an extra rounding off little tightening of the bow to some of the stories that you've gone on. And people really enjoy some of those. I saw the Winter Miss finale twice because we did the experience twice in one day because we're crazy people. I loved the finale so much. I was especially taken by Father Platymus, which is your sort of Santa Claus character whose story goes in a series of unexpected directions. His monologue at the end of the experience just killed me. Um, for the record, I just want to say that I, I was mostly confused by the term season finale, which I understood to be something that happens at the end of a season and not at the end of every show. And I think that closing ceremony makes a lot more sense to me. <laughs> the way we think about it is that a season is a collection of stories. And so it's the finale of that season. You've gone once. Most people go once, right? Nick is not expecting the crazies. <laughs> uh, we have a lot of people who've come many times, who come multiple times a season, and they're some of our most enthusiastic and loyal fans who come back over and over. And that's one of the things that we really wanted to do, is that for me, when I personally love an experience, I want to go back and go there over and over and over because I get to know the world like the back of my hand. So we do cater for the crazies because uh, I'm one of the crazies, you know, in that way, shape, and <laughs> form. It does sound like you specifically designed for repeat play, which is, you know, something that obviously escape rooms struggle with because once you've gone and you've done it, the magic has disappeared. You know the secrets. You mentioned that you have multiple storylines. You say most people can do maybe three to five in one visit. How many are there possible to do? We've always been fine tuning that. Season one had 16, season two had 13, season three had 12. And I think that we've realized that the sweet spot is 10. 10 is perfect because 10 is exactly two non-rushed visits. And I think any more than that, and I think people are rushing slightly. Well, it's 10, but really, of course, there's a secret one. I think we now we're going to do 10 per season because we think that is the right balance of experience. In your experience, do you recommend that people come on two separate occasions then to try to get it all in if they want to see the entire season? Or should they be a crazy person like David and do it all in one day? I personally would do it all in one day because obviously, you know, there's a big cast and sometimes roles change and you develop relationships to the characters across the day. So what's really nice is that you will get familiar with Phantom Peak over one day. And it's actually just a very nice place to just be and hang out. And I'm not saying that as like a, an advert for it. it is just a nice place to be and hang out. It's a lovely set, as the cool kids say on TikTok. I think doing it twice in one day is the best way of doing it, <laughs> personally. But sometimes, you know, some people like coming at the beginning of a season and then coming at the end of a season because obviously the show molds and it changes a little bit as things do, as people set into the rhythm of things like any theater show, it kind of gets into its groove. So there's always little bits of change and things like that as it goes across. So I think whether you're crazy or incredibly organized, there's a lot of exciting things that can happen at Phantom Peak either way. Yeah, I, I remember one of the things that David said he really appreciated when he was there was that the actors like remembered him and remembered conversations and storylines that they had experienced earlier. And it just made it feel like a community, like a small neighborhood or like walking into that bar where everybody knows your name. You know, it's it's comforting. <laughs> we have amazing actors who really care about making the show great, really care about the audience. Our actors are professional, immersive theater actors. So for them, an engaged audience member like David and Lisa and their group is the best audience member to have. They will do everything they can to bring them into the experience because that makes everyone's day better and the show better. But it's also about trying to make it feel real, trying to learn people's names if you can, if you can do that in a natural way. Some characters, of course, 
wouldn't ask your name. Some characters probably would. And it is about making it organically feel exciting. I think it's one of the things we do probably best is having that building of relationships with people. There are kids who've asked characters to give them birthday greetings and things like that because they become so attached to different characters. A friend of mine is helping with some press and PR. And he said to me, I would do anything for that postwoman with that pet rock. I would kill for her. And people develop these very strong attachments to some characters. And it is a real tribute to the actors, a tribute to the cast, and a tribute to how they make the structure of the show work for them to make a better experience, both them as performers and customers as actors. And each character really does feel like a different character. A lot of the more open-worldy, kind of large cast immersive experiences I have been to, where there is a game element Everyone sort of feels like generic NPCs who you do the thing they ask you to, they give you the stock response. With the characters that I encountered in Phantom Peak, each one really felt like a fully fleshed out individual. And we approached them as such. We approached them very differently. There's the more villainous character who I got into it a little bit with. There was the character who is this hopeless screw up who you're being gentle and kind to because no one in the world is being kind to them i think that for me obviously a lot of the commercial side of phantom peak is less my area i'm a creative by background and i'm a writer by background and that is the thing that of course i really care about most in the entire project i really care about writing characters that are rounded have desires that have wants that have needs that you meet them and you're like i know who this is that's how it should feel because that's how it feels in the real world. When you meet real people, you're like, I know who you are. You tell yourself to me by the way you dress, by the way they act, by the way you show your values. The characters we feel should shout those things when they meet you. When we make these stories, we're always trying to make it sure that we're like, right, okay, this character, what situation are they in? How do they feel about it? You know, why do they want this? So for us, a lot of the key work about building a season at Phantom Peak is done on paper so that when the actors can get up on their feet, they're confident and they know how to build those characters and make them feel real. And it allows them to do their job as best they can. I think one of the problems that people face with a lot of open world things is that they think of characters purely as functions. And characters are functions in a story. They absolutely are. They're a function of narrative and they are there to drive a story along. And that's fine. But that doesn't mean that you don't have to do the work. You don't have to be like, who is this? Why are they? Why are they in this world? Why are they in this town? Why do they stay? You know, why don't they leave? And that's the work that we're always trying to do in Phantom Peak. I'm not saying that we always get it right. We added a character in Hallowed Peak. I didn't get right, who now has just disappeared. But we tried to do something interesting with status, but it just, the character just didn't work. And the reason it didn't work is we do everything on Notion. I don't know if anyone used Notion. Notion is, is amazing, kind of internal wiki building piece of software for businesses and companies and projects. I advise anyone look at it if you're building a creative project. And our notion was just underdeveloped. We hadn't done the work, so the character couldn't exist properly. And that's why that character didn't work. And whenever we failed, it's because we haven't made sure that we can ask the basic questions of a character. You know, let's say hypothetically, of all the characters that you met in Phantom Peak, David, if they walked into a coffee shop, you would know what they ordered. You would know how they'd own the room. You know where they sit down. You know what happened if their drink wasn't right. You know every single thing about them. And when we get it wrong, it's because we haven't asked ourselves the question. We haven't done the work. We haven't done the research. We've just been like, we've got to have a character that functions like this because the story says so. And then the character sucks. <laughs> Makes sense. And I agree with the statement. I mean, that's awesome. A lot of times when those characters are boring, I have a tendency to just look at them like quest dispensers or something like that. We're taking a moment to thank our sponsor, Morty. Morty is a free app for discovering, planning, tracking, and reviewing your escape rooms and other immersive social outings. And Morty is now available for all to use on its brand new web experience, in addition to its fantastic iPhone app. I believe in Morty so much that I have a stake in it as an advisor. Your pleas have been heard. 
the Morty web experience and mobile web experience is available for all to use. You don't just need an iPhone anymore. The web version of Morty has been available for a while to discover and find new escape rooms, but now you can track your rooms, which is immensely helpful for filtering out rooms that you've already played. You can now wish list rooms and you can also leave ratings and reviews via the web, which is a lot easier than having to type on your phone. This is not just a great thing for Android users, it's phenomenal for us iPhone users. If you haven't had a chance to check this out yet, I strongly encourage you to do so. Morty has grown into an essential tool for PG, myself, and Lisa, as we have been traveling and looking for games to play. You can learn more at mortyapp.com slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D to sign up and get a special badge for our listeners. Link and details are in the show notes. All right. So, Nick, you've given us a lot of tidbits about how gameplay works in general at Phantom Peak. But could you give us a specific example of how like one trail would play out? Yes. Is the answer no would be the end of the podcast. (laughs) <laughs> that'd be very weird. That'd be, that'd be, that'd be, no. <laughs> see you next see you next year. <laughs> Maybe next year. <laughs> no, we'd still have to ask you about Spectre and Vox. Oh, yeah. That's, that's still stuff to get yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that I, will I, not I, be framed as a yes or no question. <laughs> it's best to think of a trail, not like a series of puzzles, but more like, like a video game quest. So, for example, the app might say, you hear about someone around town, someone new in town, and they're all dressed in black, and they've got a problem that they need help with. And you go to the saloon, you find that person, they'd be like, hey, what's your problem? They might say that they've discovered something wrong in the Jonico accounts. They might say something more interesting than that. And that particular trail does end with that uh, Jonico has been cursed by Agogoth, the great demon of spreadsheets, which is a very complex trail. Eventually, the only way you get Agogoth to release one of those characters' souls in Phantom Peak is by getting them a high-ranking job into the Jonico accounting department, which is a very complex negotiation you have to do right with one character at the end about what rank they get in Jonico. But... Again, what it will be is a series of steps that happen with obstacles in the way. So what it will always be is, I know I want to get this from this character. How are you going to desire obstacle solution? You've got to convince this character to do this. Oh, okay. And then I've got to go and find this particular code and then put it into this machine. So each individual step will be the broken out parts of the narrative on that three-act structure. So what it won't be, it's Phantom Peak is purposefully unpuzzly because one of the fundamental problems with puzzles is that they are poor storytelling devices. As we all know, Escape Rooms is such a difficult medium to tell a story in because the obstacles that puzzles present a lot of the time are necessarily arbitrary. You know, they are necessarily something that someone has put in the way to make extra time for you to be in a space. A lot of it will be discovery, looking into archives, doing research, but each individual step along the way will give you an extra little piece of the story, whether it's Littlefield, the postal officer, saying, I'm the only rank zero in town. Why am I the only rank zero in town? That doesn't make sense. So you go to the aptitude center and try and recreate the steps that Littlefield went through to get their rank. And you realize there's a glitch in there. And then you have to be like, right, who is in charge of that glitch? It's Perigate, who's the most senior Jonico employee in town. And Perigate goes, no, I can't possibly tell you about that unless you're a Jonico union member. And you have to go and swear your oath to the union. So what it happens to do is like you start to go along these individual steps along the trail that kind of worms you into the world. And by the end, you realize that the reason why Littlefield has a rank zero is because her hero, Jonas, absolutely despises her and also says that Littlefield is creepy because she apparently has a lock of Jonas's hair. Don't know how she got that. So you find at the end, again, you have this revelation, this confrontation with the character at the end of your trail where you ha- always have a point of higher standing. Always something that you learn about the world that you present to the character. So you have this moment to feel like you change their status. Whether that happens next time you see them or not, that's dependent on external factors. It's always a character who wants something and you go on a journey to discover why or someone has a problem. It always escalates from something seemingly innocuous to something often quite strange at the end. And we always try and have lots of twists and turns along the way, but that's the kind of the way that storytelling and gameplay and puzzles work. It's really comes back to story and characters and the world and the obstacles that the world naturally presents to people trying to find out information. 
During our last interview, you made it pretty clear that you felt that escape room creators were leaning too hard on puzzles as the core and sometimes only form of gameplay in escape rooms. Phantom Peak has gone in a really different direction as you were just describing. There's a bit of deduction, there's a bit of light puzzling, but a lot of the gameplay is interaction-based. It's about figuring out who to speak to and how to speak to them, and maybe some light social engineering in some cases. How has the experience of Phantom Peak impacted your thoughts on the subject of puzzles and gameplay in escape rooms? I think it softened me slightly in a way. I think I was a little hard last time on puzzles and people trying to make very puzzly experiences. Because when you are wanting to do something different, often egotistically, you think everyone else needs to do something different. Because we are ourselves and it's difficult to see outside the confines of our own mind. I think the thing that I still would say and still fundamentally believe is that people need to do the work more on story with puzzles and make the two symbiotically work within escape rooms and make escape rooms that make sense. Because that's, I think, one of my things that I don't particularly like about escape room storytelling and puzzles is that often they are just arbitrary obstacles when they don't have to be. They can be placed there by someone. They can be in the way for a reason. They can do little reveals about the character and the world and things like that. I still fundamentally believe that in terms of like a classical structure, it's very hard to tell a really good story in escape room, but you can do it. Like some of the best games in the world absolutely do that. If they're not going to tell a direct classical story, they don't have to. There are plenty of video games that have incredible world building and I would argue incredibly poor storytelling. I've been playing Elden Ring, uh, which is an <laughs> incredible world, but the story is fundamentally, I mean, from my point of view, I've watched a lot of lore video, it's incomprehensible. And there are bits in that thing where things happen to characters. And I'm like, I have no idea why this is happening or why the music is telling me to feel something. And sometimes I feel that way in escape rooms where at the end they're like, look at how sad you should feel. And I'm like, all right, sad feeling, not commencing, but I'll look sad because someone's watching me on camera. And I think that escape rooms and puzzles should be used to at least build the world. And if they can't build the story, does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think... Tying all of it together in Phantom Peak, you have these finales, these conclusions, which I think are an interesting representation of how Phantom Peak allows agency and autonomy and tells a story because you have this illusion of agency in making things happen for characters in the world. And Everyone is actually making these things happen for those characters in the world, but they're all delivering it as if you're the first person, the only person who has helped them. But we also have the autonomy to do none of it. And if you go to Phantom Peak, you wander around, you have a couple drinks, you have something to eat, you play a carnival game, and then you show up at the finale. The beauty of it is that the story progresses for you anyway. You get that conclusion and you may not know how it came about like someone who fully participated, but you know that the world moved around you while you were there. I think it's a really cool balance that you've hit. I think one of the things I didn't realize would work about those finales, because we, we didn't do the finale for the first season. I mean, we did that for Halloween, Hallow Peak onwards. And Wintermas was the first time we really tried to rope a lot of stories together. And we're going to try that going forward because we know it succeeded. But what is quite nice is that actually the way that the audience share those stories amongst themselves. For example, one of the trails in Wintermas was about someone who had a song quite literally stuck in their head. The earworm. The earworm. And they quite literally had an earworm, a spectral paranormal earworm in their head that if they didn't sing, then they would die. And at the end, the earworm came out of the ear and they threw it into the crowd. Great moment. I, at that moment, everyone's like, ah! But also some people are like, what that about? He's like, he had an earworm in his head. <laughs> yeah, they're just like, they're like, and they're explaining to each other. And all you need to know as a participant or as an observer is like, he succeeded in getting out of it what he needed to get. But then as someone who's done that particular story, you're like, ah, I get it. And maybe it wants you, makes you want to come back. Maybe it wants you to understand what happened. But for a lot of people, it's satisfying enough to know that is the end of a story 
even if you don't know what story. I'd like to just take a moment and point out that the earworm trail is a pun, Nick. You made a pun. I know. I'm not really... If anyone knows me, I don't really like puns at all. And it is... But you uh, did it. But I did. Phantom Peak has... You committed uh, yeah. pun. Uh, yeah, it's fair enough. Yeah. Oh, God. Well, what, 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 what have I become? What have I become? <laughs> So the open world concept solves at least some of the challenges of the escape room business model, while it probably introduces some new challenges as well. What are some of your key lessons and takeaways about the open world immersive gaming model? It requires a lot of people to run it. That's the truth of it. That's a complicating factor. It's not the cheapest thing to run in the world. And obviously, as I said, earlier i'm more focused on the creative and the delivery part and i have other people who focus more on that kind of modeling and financial part as part of the business but for me i would say the main thing to learn is that an escape room once you've built it is a very simple prospect you build it one person can run it and it just keeps going until we think it's tired Mm -hmm. whereas phantom peak i can't say that this is the only way of making an open world concept because I've only done it for seven months and there are undoubtedly countless better ways to do Phantom Peak than the way I'm doing it now. And there are undoubtedly people who will come to Phantom Peak and work out a much better business model, a much better way of telling stories and a much better way of doing things. Because when you're doing something in uncharted territory, you don't have a map. You can't look over someone's shoulder and say, ah, this but, which is always the way you make truly great things. Just build on someone else's other stuff. But that's what we all do, right? We see someone else and we do that. And I think Phantom Peak is exciting because we're in uncharted territory and no really done this before. But it does take a lot of staff to run it. It does you know, require a lot of people to make it work. But that's also its advantage. You, know, you can get big corporates in, things like that, which would be good for business. So yeah, like Phantom Peak, all its positives are all its negatives at the same time from an operational point of view. But yeah, ultimately, it's fun to be at the kind of forefront of something although incredibly tiring. I'm very tired. The seasonal model, this is the thing I didn't say, we've got a skate room, it's done forever, the crepe's done. We have to make new Phantom Peak stories every like four months. And that's a lot of work. You are a madman to commit to that. <laughs> yeah. This kind of yeah. touches on the, the next question that I want to ask you. Everything in Phantom Peak is Nick Moran. If you are someone who knows Nick and his voice, even if you've just listened to the two episodes of this podcast, I think that walking around, listening to the videos, talking to the characters, seeing the way the world functions and the way these characters interact with one another, everything about it is clearly born of the brain of Nick Moran. And my personal observation about this is that Fandom Peak lives on its writing. And I think it's the thing that separates it from so many other larger scale immersive experiences is the writing and voice that you imbue everything with. How do you scale that? It's a great question. And it is largely speaking, the business's problem. Uh, Yeah, just being honest with you. And it is a problem that I face. And it is with the business partners I have is the constant question that we ask because ultimately Phantom Peak as it is now, it's surprisingly, for something so large, it's surprisingly outerish. That's kind of the weird thing about Phantom Peak. It's so big, but it, it's tonally and executionally so tightly controlled in a way that actually some of the escape rooms I've done haven't been. I would say most escape rooms are not as reined in and specifically crafted as this giant world you've built. Yes, the truth is that I have plans for how to do more of that better, but ultimately the truth is the Phantom Peak, in order to keep growing, it needs like a writing team. It needs like a writer's room. That's the best way of doing it, which we have now with Gareth and Enrique, who are part of my game design team, who are both really good, but it's not enough people, especially, let's say, hypothetically, things went amazingly and Phantom Peak was launching in the moon a uh, hundred times the size or whatever it is, or launching in Florida, and we wanted to do different stories. It's impossible for me. I cannot do that. So the question of scaling is about building a team of the right kind of people. It's all possible and it's all stuff that other people do. It's just something that people don't do in our industry. And so therefore it feels scary. Dan Harmon and no one else made Rick and Morty and they've successfully done many seasons with Dan Harmon alone. 
and they've managed to create a team of people who understand the characters, understand the world, and create amazing stories in it, which are, and it's arguably getting better and better. That kind of tightly controlled stuff is, I think, more a product of being a scrappy young company and me being a generally, although maybe I don't seem it, a generally a nervous and anxious person about taking people on. So yeah, I think it's a great question, but it's all solvable, but it's not something people typically do in our world. So it's kind of feels scary. What you're going through in letting go and scaling up and bringing on teams feels very similar to what Lisa and I have been doing for the last couple of years with Room Escape Artist and the podcast and Recon, as we have been learning how to extend our capacity and also get more sleep at night by working with more people and helping them develop their skill sets so that we don't have to do everything all the time. I mean, has that helped you get more or less sleep, <laughs> David? We've gotten a lot more sleep in the last few months. We've actually been doing a bit better. Over the time I've known you, David, I think that you have got significant, like it's, there comes a point when it's about instilling order and the way you want things rather than necessarily controlling every single detail. That is somewhere that I wish to get to, but it feels a long road there. It isn't, actually. It's just a question of hiring some people. But that feels like a big, terrifying leap and like lots of people to take on and lots of people to train. Uh, I like to think of myself as a, like a good creative and good in a small team and good at working with people and someone who really cares. But I'm not, I'm not a manager. I'm not used to managing huge teams. And at Phantom Peak, there are other people who manage other parts of that who are more experienced with like larger things like that. I'm used to managing and delivering creative. That's been my job. That's what I'm good at. So it's that thing of like expanding that. It's just a daunting task. I'm excited to get to grips with. It's just scary. For me, a lot of the journey on letting some of this go and getting better at it began with the first episode of this podcast when Alan Lee was talking about this idea that other people's work is just other people's work. It's not better or worse, but learning how to let go is a key part of it. Yeah. Rizova is your all-in-one, all-inclusive software for bookings made specifically with escape rooms in mind. Incorporating community-driven features, it's designed to follow the guest journey. From selecting times to book, waiver management, integrated point-of-sale system, and follow-up emails. Rizova is the ultimate online reservation software designed to elevate the guest experience, increase game master efficiency, drive sales, and improve operations. PG, what is fantastic about Rizova is that they offer something for the owners, something for the guests, and something for the GMs. What does Rizova offer the owners in our industry? As a business owner myself, I know that what I care about the most is increasing revenue and my bottom line. Rizova helps you do that because A, they don't have forced convenience fees. It's commission free. If you're doing really well and you have a ton of bookings, they're not going to charge you commission on any of those. I love having a integrated point of sales, which means I don't have to buy a bunch of different systems. Everything is already fully integrated. Plus, when the bookings, waivers and point of sales all talk to each other, that increases business efficiencies. And it's just less problems for me to have to worry about and they have an incredible integrations team who are ready to help make sure that your transition to Rizova is simple and smooth. To learn more, get a free demo, and find out how easy Rizova can make your transition to their technology, head over to rizova.com rea, and be sure to use our link or drop our name, because as a thank you to Repod listeners, Rizova is offering up to $100 in Google AdWords when you sign up through our link. Details in the show notes. On the subject of doing more, do you have plans or aspirations for expansion? Or more specifically, can I get me a Phantom Peak in New York? I uh, would love to. 
whenever we send a mail out, we send quite a few, like any business does. We've had a lot of Americans come. And amongst our American audience, obviously who cannot come to Phantom Peak very often, it's like an 89% open rate or something insane. Because ultimately, Phantom Peak would do 10 times better than it does in London anywhere in the US. It just would do. London is an amazing place for immersive stuff. But Phantom Peak is a place where extroverts do really especially well. The world is ready to accept your energy and to give back to you as much as you can. Although there isn't as much immersive stuff in the American scene, there's like haunted houses and like all these kind of things where people go in wanting to give that energy to the world. It often takes a bit of time to warm up some of the more reticent Brits, but Americans go in and they dive in at first. And in fact, speaking, New York would do incredibly well. It'd do incredibly well. If you were to expand, how do you keep a Phantom Peak expansion in the US from becoming the experiential equivalent of a soulless, missing the point, American adaptation of a successful British TV series? By tight control of all video content. Ultimately, I still really care about the world. I know that the structures are built in a way that even with actors, because we've not always nailed it on casting front, even with actors who are bad, the structures work well enough that the story still carries through and they still work and people still get the right experience. As long as that work is there, as long as that structural work is there, Phantom Peak will work wherever. I'm absolutely certain of that because it is about mechanics underneath. I'm certainly curious to see it. I went into Phantom Peak honestly skeptical in spite of the fact that I know you as well as I do and I have loved your past work. I went into Phantom Peak a bit skeptical and I left loving it. I'm still not completely sold on the idea that a lot of folks could replicate the magic. I think that it really is leaning very hard on the writing. It's leaning very hard on the performers. And I think that just like with escape rooms, there are a lot of ways to do it well. And there are just as many ways to do it poorly. And I'm very curious to see what future this format brings, because I think we're seeing one really strong example of it. And I'm really curious where it lands. I do think that what my opinion is for if anyone is looking to do a Phantom Peak right now or anything like that, hire a writer, hire a writing team. It's writing first. Phantom Peak is writing first and everything else second. That's how you make a Phantom Peak work. And that's the only way of making something like that really exist. And I think that it's something that the industry doesn't do very well. I went to a couple of large scale experiences in the US recently, and some in the UK as well. And the sets were beautiful, the actors were fantastic, but clearly the writing was just this sort of afterthought that was crowbarred in. And that's really a shame. I too have been to Meow Wolf. I did not say Meow Wolf. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it all depends on your priorities really, doesn't it? What is the world you're creating? What is the effect that you want? If you want the primary thing is this wonder and seeing set, then just focus on that. Make sure that the kind of set is varied around every single corner. Because set fans is very good, but there's better, definitely. There's like lots better sets out there in the world. There just is. But Phantom Peak is about mechanics as much as anything. That's what we've invested in, mechanics for storytelling and how we make those work. So it really depends on what your priority is across the experience. So when we last spoke... We talked about the struggles that you had with Time Run's Celestial Chain being viewed as, quote, not an escape room by the enthusiast crowd of the time. What has the reception from the escape room community been for Phantom Peak? Uh, Largely very positive. I think people come and they understand what it is. Phantom Peak is quite difficult to understand unless you've been, and that's like a fundamental problem. It's also the fundamental struggle of this episode. It is. I'm really sorry. I struggle to articulate what it is to people and I live and breathe it. But then again, that perhaps I'm too close to it. But Phantom Peak, once you've experienced it, you get it. And it is just like being in a video game. That's the best way I keep thinking of saying it. It's like being in an open world video game. That's still the most analogous experience, which not many things in real life try and do. But Phantom Peak's really trying to be like a really good video game, a really good RPG. 
But the escape room, I think people don't mind that it's not puzzly because I've seen the comments, people are like, it's not puzzly, but that's not what it's about. And that's quite nice. You know, people are like, it's not puzzly, but I understand. Whereas I think with Celestial Chain, people were like, what is this? I don't get it. But then again, it was a long time ago now. The industry wasn't as mature as it is now. And enthusiasts weren't as mature as they are now. And players are coming from much more different backgrounds. And I think they come less from this idea of like, here's the platonic paradigm of what an escape room is and measuring it against it. And they come saying escape rooms are a type of thing I like to enjoy. And I'm excited by it. And I'm excited to see what other things I will also enjoy that I like this. Talking to you over the course of this episode, it feels like you have healed a bit from some of the trauma of <laughs> Celestial Chain. And I'm happy for you. Yeah, I think I, I have done. Yes, I think I've had a rough year over the last year. I think like Vanta Peak is just being honest. It's taken a lot from me like mentally to get here. And I, I don't think I've been especially well on that front the whole time. And it continues to. On the relationship with the enthusiast community, I would say what I like is even people who don't like it, they get it. And that's all I want. That, that's all I personally require. I feel you. Nick, I have to transition to a different source of trauma. And it's a question that you know is coming. Many of our listeners have it on their minds, and that is Spectre and Vox, your original Spectre and Vox. What is that? Kickstarter? Yeah, your, <laughs> your Kickstarter, where the expected delivery date was March of 2021. And yeah. I know that there were a lot of problems ranging from COVID to supply chains to giant ships getting stuck in the Suez Canal. But even accounting for all of that, your backers, myself included, have been waiting a long time. What's the status? So we've made 632 copies and we started making... Actually, I think actually let's... Because some of your listeners might not know about Spectre and Fox. And I think that is... I'll probably like to give people some context about what the whole project is. Or should I assume that everyone does? You can assume it. If they haven't listened to, to the first episode that you were on, then that's fine. Okay, understood. Go back and listen to it. I now don't go up at the end of every single sentence. Um, <laughs> I'm improved. So Spectrum Vox, again, it hasn't been for me easy. As a project, it was a very ambitious project. And all that's happened is over the course of it, things have got harder and more expensive. From the 238% rise in material costs, which meant that on every single copy, I lost money, to the rise in shipping costs, which meant that the shipping costs that people have spent I lost money. There is not a single part of that project that I have gained on. And all I'm trying to do right now is deliver it in a way that I do not go bankrupt. <laughs> that is my current goal. And the truth is, is like leveling with everybody. I joked at the start, I'm not a rich person. I'm not wealthy. I don't have money. So for me, the only way I can get money for Spectrum Fox is by working. So I have to work double to funnel Spectrum Vox. These 138 pound houses that people have spent, they're worth like five times that, just in terms of like materials and effort alone. And that's basically the, like the Spectrum Vox like crux. And I understand it's my fault, it's the world's fault, it's Assumption's fault, but like ultimately the responsibility is mine. And I, like, I just want to deliver this project. Uh, and the large majority of the backers have been amazingly understandable. I did get a death threat for not delivering Spectrum Vox, which someone found my address on company's house and sent me a threatening letter, which was distinctly horrible. Charming. Charming. But it is that situation that it's just a project that has just eaten up so much resources. However, it does feel like we've turned the corner on it now. Like in January, I was always afraid to hit go on the gluing part. But also there are things that... Bluntly, I should have just said that what the backers did. Like, I'm just being honest. It's like gluing, that takes like an hour to do, but anyone could have done that and people could have done that and glued their game together. But because lots of people were unhappy about it, we took that on. And it's one of my problems as a person and as a character is that I am quite a soft person. I'm someone who wants to please people. I don't want to like disappointing people. It's like really hurts me. I don't want to do that. Whenever there was a point, I could have been like, we're going to deliver it. Do you assemble it? Here's your instructions. And yeah, we took on that cost. It's been a project where 
I haven't always made the right decisions. But it is turned the corner. We've made now finalized 632. And I only started, we only started gluing in Jan. I think it was Jan 5th or Jan 3rd. And yeah, at this pace, we'll have all games glued in another six weeks. We're having developer problems, which means you have to transition the app to another thing, which is lovely. But it is a project that has taken a lot from me, both mentally, physically, and above all, financially. <laughs> oh, man. Nick, you should make Spectre and Vox one of the trails in Phantom Peak and make your guests do the gluing for you. That should just be like one of their quests. Oh, my God. You have to be here. Oh, you're here for four hours, but one hour is gluing. <laughs> As someone who has been self-funding all of the madness that we make for our community for so long. And also, yeah, like we're not sitting on giant stacks of cash to fund all of this as well. I get it. I get where you're coming from. And I truly can't imagine having to deliver a product after everything that has gone wrong with this project. Setting aside fault and miscalculation, at some point it stops mattering and it's just the complexity of it is huge. And I appreciate and respect that you're working through it, painful as it is. It is fundamentally painful. It is like that. That's that's the truth of it. It is fundamentally hard. But like, honestly, David, you had the advantage of actually seeing a fully finished copy in London when you were. I did. It's very pretty. And the game is lovely and really quite mad at points. There's a lot of phantom peakiness in it because there's a lot of exploration of the same ideas because obviously in the same person the creative behind both of them. So what do you expect? Well, I look forward to it dominating my dining table. Oh my God, that's a phrase that I can't live down. Never forget. But people <laughs> who I don't even know are coming to me in Phantom Peak saying, Nick, I'm really excited by the project. I can't wait for it to dominate my dining table. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> well, screw you all. It will do one day. It can do now. But yeah, like to flip this back to your positive, it's going to be beautiful. I'm very proud of that world. The world of Spectrum Rocks is very well thought out and really exciting. And I'd love to do more with it. We kind of part designed a second game that we have an idea for. So there's loads and loads and loads and loads that can be done with it, especially since now we've got through like the majority of the hardship. So like Spectrum Vox as a company and as a project has incredible legs. We just need to get this game out there, really. And that's what we're really excited by. So yeah, there's a bright future for Spectrum Vox. Just need to get there. And we're really close. I'm tired and excited. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate how candid you are with your feelings about this. And honestly, like I'm friends with the guys from Magic Puzzle Company, and he was getting death threats, months of invective from backers. Sometimes it's like, guys, you invested in this because you want to support small creators. And let's try to be a little understanding and know that these are people and not just giant corporate shells that you're tweeting at or whatever. I'm always the first to defend Kickstarter creators. If you are someone who feels that they want to just make a purchase, go on Amazon. Kickstarter is not the place where things get delivered on time or sometimes even close to on time. Or sometimes at all. Yeah, I call it the pinky swear network. There are no guarantees on Kickstarter. I put my money into things and creators that I think are cool. And I hope that I get something back that is as cool as the concept that was sold to me. But there's never a guarantee here. And I would say most Kickstarters and in some form of disappointment, whether it's delay or the product not living up to what it's supposed to be. And in all honesty, I would rather a product that I kickstarted come very late than have it be a letdown. I mean, the thing I can promise for Spectrum Rocks again is that the game is beautiful. Regardless of whether you like the experience that I've designed for it, you are getting your money's worth. You absolutely are. I mean, hopefully, David, you can attest to that. I agree with you. I can't wait to have one. Looking forward to it. One day. All right, moving on. To close things out, what is the status of Time Run, if there is a status at all? Time Run will return. I'm in the process of, together with the original backers of Time Run, we're negotiating a kind of a new way to bring it back. And we're actually in the process of looking for partners who want to bring Time Run back, actually. Again. Whoa. So if someone wants to say, hey, someone wants to count we bring Time Run to life, I'm about to get the rights. In the UK or 
in the US or anywhere? It can be anywhere. Tyrone can return. The thing is, guys, I've got games people loved. I know exactly how it works. If you want to bring back Lance of Longinus, I suggest a set that I know how to build. Every single piece of content already ready. All it needs is a home. Tyrone's coming back. Guys, bigger, better than ever, provided someone has money. But yeah, it's been a long road to get here. The original investors who are really great guys, they're busy with lots of other projects. It was a kind of big discussion about that. But yeah, now we're all in. We're all excited to see it come back and it's going to smash it really. Well, hopefully, provided we have a home for it. But I would love to bring Time Run anywhere. For me, like again, I've become incredibly excited about doing things in different places around the world. But yeah, Time Run, it's coming back. Sweet. I was not actually expecting that. We are running low on time, so there's a question that I'm going to leave dangling, and we'll talk about it in the Patreon bonus episode, but I want to have a conversation with you on the legacy of Time Run, because it's something I have been pondering quite a bit lately. I'm eager to have that conversation, so hopefully folks will join us for that chat. Yeah, sign up to be a patron and get a ton of bonus episodes. So Nick, I know you have a lot on your plate, but what are you working on nowadays? Twofold, really. Phantom Peak, obviously, that's got stuff to happen, things to launch. It's got to be fed. My responsibility is making new seasons and great experiences. And then the second one is, of course, delivering and finalizing Spectrum Box, which is in the process of happening. So they're the kind of two major things for, the, I guess, the next few months. There are other things in the pipeline which may come off, but they might not. And so there's a, there's a lot of exciting things out there. But yeah, we'll see. Who knows, right? That's great. And where can people find you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at Varanfox. I routinely make it private. Good luck. It's Russian roulette, whether I'm available to be followed or not. Get in while you can. Get in while you can, guys. Who knows whether I'll be private on as Repod ships out. And that's probably the best way of finding me. You can email me at hello nickmoran.com or nickofantompeak.com. So if you're interested in talking about Phantom Peak, email me there. Even just about talking about me. I don't know why you would be. Strange things to do. If you have very complimentary things to say, then email him there. <laughs> uh, maybe if you have complimentary things to say, just just say them nicely somewhere. To, to, I'm quite a shy person at heart, so I wouldn't really know what to say if you were too nice about me. I'd feel embarrassed. I get little, <laughs> little Studio Ghibli-esque flushes here in my cheeks. I'm pointing to the little bit below the eye and make, moving my forefingers in a little circle. <laughs> Nick, thank you so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure to return, and um, uh, I will be back, or I won't be. The Reality Escape Pod is produced by Lisa Spira. Music by Ryan Elder of ryaneldermusic.com. Edited by Steve Ewing of Stand Inside Media. And brought to you by roomescapeartist.com. Your home for well-researched, rational, and reasonably humorous escape room and immersive gaming content and events. Our Patreon is the backbone. It is the foundation. It is the thing that allows us to put in all of the time, care, and money that we invest into creating podcasts like this and all of the daily content that Room Escape Artist creates. David and I have put a lot of work and thought into creating really awesome content for our Patreon supporters. Backing us at the $5 level gets you access to the RIA Discord. We have really fun conversations, discussions about escape rooms, immersive experiences, and more. And it also gets you access to our bonus show. This is a companion show to our main episode, and it's usually a more casual chat with our guests and each other. These episodes are pretty long. They're another 40 to 60 minutes. So if you can't get enough of our content, you can get more of it here. And we also tend to get a little bit looser here as well. If you have been enjoying this podcast, we would really appreciate a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It doesn't cost you anything, but it really helps us spread the word about Reality Escape Pod. Thank you to our highest level Patreon backers. Breakout Games, Derek Tam, Olivier Escape, Escapism, Escaparium, Panic Room, Byron Delmonico, Josh Rosenfeld, Paula Swan, Rex Miller, Scott Olson, and the Ministry of Peculiarities. Thank you all so much for your ongoing support. 
One thing that's been fantastic at Fantapeak is the level of engagement by the fans. They have a Discord where they chat about stuff which I haven't actually been on, partly because it feels like snooping. No, that's their space to talk. And what's great about them is that some people are so engaged that they give us little gifts. And there's a group of fans who I won't name names of, but in uh, Winter at Hogwood, one of the trails in Wintermas, there was a, a brief sort of 2.5 second showing of a mock-up of a gravestone for Terence the Talking Platypus. Now, Terence the Talking Platypus, for complex reasons, was a platypus that was wished into life by somebody who wished for a platypus that could talk back but actually it ended up being a pretty stroppy little platypus. And it was a picture of his gravestone, which said, Terence the Talking Platypus, the world is quieter without you, because where he was killed by uh, Roberto Black, the Jonico Center. Very complicated little video that is. I'm showing to PG and David now. Here is a 3D printed mock-up of that 2.5 second still. And that oh. little moment, this is like amazing. It's really, really well done. That moment was amazing to me. There's also a bigger version of it, apparently, which I haven't seen. But this one, this mock-up of Terence Hogan Blackpuss's gravestone, I keep on my desk. And it's great to show at parties or things like that because people are like, why do you have a gravestone for Terence the Talking Platypus or the Talkopus, as it says on the Yeah, gravestone. it says the Talkopus. It's so cute. Do you know where else it's great to show with this in addition to parties? Where? Our show notes. You can find it there. Hey. <laughs> 